Good morning and welcome. What a beautiful Lord's Day morning it is. As we uh, begin our time of worship today, there's so many things on our minds, so many uh, uh, concerns and joys and things that weigh on us. And we need God's help to focus us on Him so that we can truly be refreshed. So let's take that moment and ask Him for His help, and then join our hearts together and ask Him together to bless our time. Let's pray. Father, may you cause your spirit to focus our hearts upon you and use this day that we might be instruments of honoring you and that we might be refreshed and recharged for the week ahead. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Psalm 46 reminds us that we live in a world full of turmoil, but we serve the God who is the essence of strength and uh, support for us. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hear now his greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from number 84 in our Psalter hymnal. Number 84.
the law of God teaches us that our Heavenly Father, our Creator, made us for the purpose of serving and honoring Him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This, he said, is the first and the great commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Two great commandments that encompass all our lives. And there are many who believe or profess to believe. That doesn't apply to them. They can live for themselves, they can live for their own purposes and goals, and there will be no consequence, there will be no day of answering. That is a lie. We don't yet see the consequence for sin, or at least not the full consequence, the true consequence, but it's coming. And God delays that consequence purely out of mercy. Second Peter 3, we're told, Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That day's coming. And that reality demands a response. It demands the response of trusting not in us, but in the Lord, and of demonstrating where our hope is found. By the way that we live. Peter says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. It's so easy to give in to the lies that surround us in our culture, the lie that you can make reality conform to your desires, the lie that you can cause morality to conform to your feelings, the lie that there will be no consequence to doing whatever feels right in the moment, the lie that you can stand on your own two feet. We must not give in to those lies, but we must trust in Christ knowing that there will be a day of judgment and that there will be an eternity thereafter. Knowing this, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability, but instead grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Let us confess together in song that our hope and our trust are not in the fading philosophies of this world and not in what we ourselves have done, but in Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life now and always. We do that by singing together number 266 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal, number 266, all four stanzas.
if we're following Jesus as the way and the truth and the life, then we need to show that by conforming our lives to His truth, by the power of His Spirit within us. That we might do that, God has given us His law, which we read in Deuteronomy 5, reminding us, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother that your, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, And that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. In this way. We demonstrate that we belong to the Lord and that His Spirit dwells within us. But for that, we need His help. So we need to pray. We need to seek His help for our sanctification, but also for all of life. Uh, A few updates regarding that. Um, Broadly speaking, we have a counseling consistory meeting Monday. Uh, please keep that in prayer. We have uh, a group from the church going camping at Tyler Creek. Uh, pray that there would be safety there and, and uh, enjoyment and upbuilding. If you're not camping with us, we encourage you to join us for a fellowship meal on Friday evening. Details are in the announcement bulletin. Um, many in our midst are mourning. We need to be praying for them. Um, Charlie and Diane, uh, they had a a funeral for Charlie's brother Bob yesterday. Um, His brother Ed also was taken to be with the Lord, and there will be a funeral on Thursday for him. Uh, We'll get those details out by email later. Um, The Blau family are grieving at, uh, at the passing of Rick's mom, Joyce, uh, please keep them in prayer. Um, also for his father, Reverend Richard Blau, 
Um, And, of course, there's a lot of family members traveling, so please uh, be in prayer for them, uh, along with others in our congregation who are grieving. Um, Bob Chapkus is scheduled to undergo surgery tomorrow uh, to remove a section of bowel where there was some precancerous cells found. Pray that that would go well, as as well as the um, recovery from it. Um, Bruce Smith is scheduled to undergo a new or undergo a procedure Monday to drain fluid from the outer membranes of his um, his lungs, uh, allow him to breathe a little easier. So, pray for that to go well and the new chemotherapy that he began on Friday as well. Um, there's so many others that we've we've mentioned in recent weeks. Pray that God would be merciful. And that in our times of weakness, our times of struggle, uh, we would find his strength. Let's pray. Father, you are so merciful and good. We see it on every side. We see it in the rain with which you blessed us yesterday, watering the crops of the field. We see it in the way that you've caused your people to gather around as we grieve, as we struggle, that we might remember in their love and their embrace your constant presence. We've seen it in the spiritual growth that you have prompted in many of us, causing us to rely more firmly on you in times of stress and strife. Father, were we to count our blessings, we would be here all day and into tomorrow, considering just the obvious ways in which you have blessed us. Teach us daily, Lord, to respond to your blessing in a manner that shows our gratitude truly as we turn away from our sins and embrace the lifestyle that shows the character of Christ that shows that we love you and we want to reflect you as our heavenly Father. And Lord, as as we grieve, not as do those who have no hope, but as those who know that Christ has overcome death, and as we face trials and difficulties and disease, as those who know that their heavenly Father is the great physician and that Christ, our elder brother, has conquered all of our enemies already and that our Holy Spirit dwells with us to strengthen us in the midst of the battle. Grant that our children might recognize that our strength does not lie within us. And our hope lies not in the feelings of the moment, but help them to see where our hope is truly found in you, the triune God, who works all things for our good and uses these light and momentary afflictions to prepare us for a glory beyond all comprehension. And grant that our neighbors might see that we have a hope that is infinitely beyond anything this world and its leaders might bring, that our very lives might be a testimony of our hope and of your goodness and grace. 
Father, we bring before you those who are struggling. We think especially of those grieving in our midst. We pray that you would comfort and strengthen the de Kukuk family, that you would bless and encourage the Blau family, that these and others who grieve among us might know the comfort of your spirit and might be constantly reminded of the triumph that you have obtained in Christ over death and the promises of eternal life that you have secured through him. Father, we pray for those in our midst who are dealing with disease and illness. We pray for Bob as he prepares for surgery tomorrow. We ask that you would strengthen and guide his surgeon, that his hand would be guided by you. We ask that you would cause that surgery to be a blessing, that you would allow the healing to go smoothly, and that you would keep both him and Margaret encouraged. Likewise for Bruce, we ask that his procedure would go well tomorrow, that the chemotherapy would be effective in reducing his cancer symptoms. And Lord, we pray that you would bless and encourage both Bruce and and Linda as they walk this path. And as Linda herself experiences continued trials uh, recovering from her surgery. We pray for others in our midst, Lord, who are going through long-term ailments, um, longing for relief from the symptoms of bodies that are broken down by a, a broken world. We pray for Keith and Lori, for Dan, for Joel, for Larry, for others in our midst. Lord, we ask that you would bless each one with the help and the healing and the strength that only you can provide. There are so many in our midst whose whose needs haven't even been publicly made known. Those who are dealing with long-term pain and with depression or anxiety. Those who are fighting with doubts and fears with spiritual warfare that's hard to even categorize, those who are uh, dealing with conflict in their families and in their workplaces. Lord, you know our needs so much better than we do. We pray that you would provide relief and comfort and rest for each one. That through the promises of your word and the encouragement of your people, you would remind us that our hope is secure. And that even these trials and hardships are meant ultimately in your hand to bless us. That even when Satan attacks with malice, you turn it to our good and our strengthening. What a blessed God we serve. Lord, we we ask that you would restore those who have strayed, We think especially of a member under discipline that you would draw that member back. And not only that one, but there are others who are wrestling with their sin, who have trod the wide path rather than the narrow way. We pray that you would draw each one back. And that you would cause us to encourage and build up one another. Father, we pray for those in our midst who are pregnant that the children within might be nurtured and strengthened and grown. 
We pray for those preparing for marriage, that their preparations might go well and might uh, prepare them well to have Christ at the center of it all. We pray for our congregation members who will be camping this week, that they might be safe, that they might enjoy a time of refreshment with one another, and that the body of Christ might thereby be built up, especially in the, the fellowship that we all gather for later in the week. We pray for our elders, our deacons, and our minister as they gather to consider the concerns and the needs of the congregation and to seek your guidance. Lord, we pray that you would provide that guidance and that you would use them to lead this congregation in a manner that is pleasing to you and upbuilding to us. Bless our members who cannot be with us um, in worship that you would strengthen and, and bless each of them. And Lord, we pray for our broader family members uh, that are going through times of struggle and, and need your care in a particular way. We think of Nick Camps and Jim Walthorn, Dan Collins, and Joby Lammers and others. Lord, we ask that you would provide the healing and the strength that they need and that you would equip us to minister to them. Lord, it's so hard for us to see the big picture. In many ways, we simply can't. But you have given us continually reminders that you're at work in all of the little aspects of our lives. That you're there for us in the midst of struggle and strife. Father, keep our hearts and our minds firmly planted in you. Recall to us day by day the promises that you have made and the faithfulness that you have shown. That we might rest wholeheartedly in you. Grant that through your word proclaimed this day, we might be strengthened and built up. That when we depart Later this day, we might do so with joy in our hearts, refreshed, strengthened, and rested, and prepared to meet whatever the, the week holds. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Help us to hold firmly to Christ. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to... Um, to look together to God's word in Exodus. Let's stand and sing together number 107 from our Psalter hymnal. This is Psalm 59. We're going to sing the first three and the fifth stanza, and then we'll sing kind of the end of the psalm later on. But this is a, a plea for deliverance in the midst of enemies, in the midst of struggle, but also a confession that it is in the Lord that we find our hope. It's not in us, it's not in our strength, it's not in our determination, it's in Him. That's what Israel had to learn when they were in Egypt. That's what we have to learn when we're in this world that's filled with struggle and strife. So number 107 stands as 1, 2, 3, and 5.
Our scripture reading is Exodus chapter 8, the first 19 verses. Exodus 8, the first 19 verses. Um, Last time we saw God pour out the first plague upon Egypt. All the surface water in Egypt turned to blood. And we saw that that was an attack directly on one of Egypt's chief gods. Because the Nile was considered a god. The one who give, gave them life. The one who gave them strength. And, uh, and God attacked. The true God attacked that false god. Now we're going to consider the second and third plagues that God poured out upon the land. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron reached out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts, and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Amen. Congregation of God beloved through Christ. I don't know about you, but when I think of God's judgment upon a people, I think of things like wars and rumors of wars. I think of earthquake and famine and flood. But God doesn't think the way we do. 
When He brings judgment, sometimes He does use big, catastrophic events like we would expect. But sometimes, He uses frogs. Sometimes, He uses insects. Sometimes, He uses that which is unexpected and humble to demonstrate that His way is not like our way and that He's able to humble us with the humblest of things. These second and third plagues, they bear similarities to one another. In both of them, we see God using something utterly common, especially in waterlogged Egypt. We see God using something exceedingly humble and generally overlooked and using them not only to demonstrate his power over Egypt and its people, but to demonstrate the absolute impotency of their false gods. He uses the humblest things to make a mockery of that which they believed was their strength. And so that's what we see in these plagues, in these two humbling events. The Lord humbles His enemies with a pair of prosperous plagues. And as we consider how He humbles Egypt with these prosperous plagues, we see first of all how He covers the land with proof of the impotence of their false gods. The start of our text, actually the verse right before it, tells us that seven days had passed since all the water of the Nile and its canals and the surface ponds had become blood. The land had been filled with a stench of blood and of dead fish and waterborne creatures. A week passes and God tells Moses it's time to go see Pharaoh again. Because again, the plagues themselves are not the point. God is sending the plagues to convey Some serious messages to Pharaoh and to his people. Pharaoh is to be reminded of the command. God has not asked. He has not made a request. Israel belongs to him and he has demanded of Pharaoh that he relinquish them and allow them to go and serve not him and not his pet projects, but the Lord God, the living God. And he's to give Pharaoh a warning. A warning that our children would understand. He's to warn Pharaoh that if you refuse to obey, it will hurt. Kids, you all understand that, right? Disobedience hurts. That's what you learned the first time your your father or mother swatted your behind. Disobedience hurts. You understand that. Pharaoh did not yet. And so he had to learn that. Now... Set aside for a moment the precise nature of this plague and recognize that what we see here in God's command to Moses is demonstration of his mercy. This is not the first time that the king has heard what God expects of him. And Pharaoh had consistently refused to acknowledge God's sovereignty. So God would have been entirely just... To say, you know what, Moses, don't bother to go to him. Don't bother to tell him. Just do this instead. Would have been entirely just. 
But he didn't. He gave him another opportunity. Kids, it's like when mom has said, you need to go clean your room, and you don't do it. And you get a a small punishment, but you still don't do it. It would be entirely just of dad to come in there and just go straight to the punishment, right? But imagine dad comes in and says, listen, your mom told you to clean the room. She even punished you for not doing it. You still haven't done it. This is your opportunity. Do it now. He doesn't have to give you that warning, does he? But when he does, that's a sign of mercy. Well, this is God's mercy. He gives that mercy to unbelievers all the time. The world itself is a demonstration of that mercy because it is filled with evidence that there is a God, a God of order, a God of life, a God of sustaining, a God whom we were made to serve. And every time they encounter us and they see the hope that we possess and they see the transforming power that God is exercising among us, And they talk to us and they hear from us where our hope is found. And they see us get up on Sunday morning and go to church. They are reminded of their calling to serve the true God. That's God's mercy. He could just punish them. He could just destroy them. But instead, he shows them this mercy. But of course, Pharaoh, like many of the unbelievers of our world, Pharaoh refuses And so God sends the threatened punishment. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now we're not told how much time passed between when Moses commanded Pharaoh and when the plague is sent. Might have been minutes, might have been hours, might have been days. But it's clear that Pharaoh has refused and so... God applies his discipline. See, God's always true to his word. It's like we heard in uh, 2 Peter earlier. Though we don't yet see the judgment, that doesn't mean it's not coming. It means God's merciful. He's giving people every opportunity. But just as surely as this plague comes, as God promised, so that day of judgment will come. On the day that God has ordained. And it will be just as real, just as tangible as this plague. Amazing. A week before the water was all blood, everything that lived in that water died. There should be no or almost no frogs in Egypt. Yet all of a sudden the river is so full that it cannot contain the frogs. Now frogs are prolific breeders anyway. If you live, well you live in Michigan, you live near a body of water. But you know that they're prolific, but not this prolific. They multiplied immensely and rapidly. So that soon they were hopping down their streets and alleys, entering into their homes, going into their most intimate places. Now you've got to understand... Egypt was familiar with frogs, but they considered them to be unclean. Up until this point, no Egyptian would consider eating off a plate that had been touched by a frog. 
That was just not, not something one would do. It was unthinkable. They were considered to be filthy. They were more defiled in nature than a shepherd, which they despised. But suddenly, they go to bake their bread and their frogs on top of the bread dough. They go to light their oven and there are frogs in their oven. They, they pull back their bed sheets and there are frogs in their bed. They roll over at night in their sleep on top of little green frogs. Can you imagine the indignity and the disgust? Now with the first plague, Pharaoh was sort of exempt, Right? All the water was turned to blood, but he could command a servant, hey, go find me some water, and that servant would be obligated to go and dig him a well until he found water with which he could fill Pharaoh's cup. So he could be a little insulated from it. Not now. No, Pharaoh's palace was filled with frogs. His bed was overrun with their slimy green presence. His food, his plate, experienced the indignity of it all. From the lowliest servant and slave of Egypt to Pharaoh's own household. The land was filled. But again, it wasn't just to mock them and it wasn't just to disgust them that God sent this plague. He was seeking to prove the impotence of their false gods. You see, Egypt regarded the frog as unclean, but they also recognized that the frog was a prolific breeder. And so one of their gods, named Heket, was depicted as a woman with a frog's head. She was regarded as the wife of their creator god, Kum. And so they believed that Kum formed each person, formed the body of each person, and Heket breathed the breath of life into them. This was... The one to whom they prayed when they wanted children or when they longed for prolific crops. This was the God of plenty. Well, God sent plenty. You see, they knew that frogs breed well. And so one of the things they believed about Heket was that she also provided plenty of crocodiles which ate the frogs, which kept them from overpopulating. And so they believed that the fact that these unclean creatures didn't overrun their land, that was due to Heket's care for them. But now God shows that he is the God of plenty. And that Heket's crocodiles were utterly impotent, utterly unable to prevent them from suffering the indignity and the disgust of having frogs fill their land. It was a slap in the face of their false god. One that they could not miss because they were everywhere. You couldn't hardly walk without stepping on them. Now Pharaoh, he doesn't want to concede that such power belongs to the Lord, or at least not to the Lord alone, so he calls his magician priests to come. And they manage to do the same with their dark arts, whether by actual black magic or by sleight of hand. They also produce frogs. But what they cannot do, what they cannot do is reduce the frogs that God has brought. More just keep piling out of the river. 
And so finally, in desperation, Pharaoh has enough. He calls to Moses and Aaron and he says, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go sacrifice to the Lord. Now notice, he doesn't show any desire to pray to the Lord himself. He doesn't show any desire to worship the Lord on his own behalf. But he's willing to concede. So Moses says, okay, he'll pray. But notice he says, you tell me when. Because he doesn't want there to be an excuse. Well, that was just a coincidence. If I'd have just waited a little longer, they'd have naturally... No. Tell me when to pray. He says, tomorrow. And at the appointed time, Moses prays and immediately... Notice, God doesn't just remove the frogs. They don't just disappear. He shows them the cost of their rebellion in a very poignant way by allowing them all to die. Filling the land with the stench of rotting, decaying frogs. But just as God had said, as soon as the plague is lifted, Pharaoh's heart is hardened He refuses to let the people go. He insists that they must not. But nonetheless, in his heart of hearts, he knows that there is no one like the Lord our God. Likewise, God will teach the people of all the nations on the last great day. Revelation 16 John says, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Not not to get into the interpretation of all the symbols here too much, but what he's saying here is that the unbelieving world will rest in their false religion and in the power of men and the philosophies of men as the source of their strength to stand against the true and living God. The Lord depicts that false strength as frogs. Hearkening back to this plague. To remind us that just as the false gods of Egypt were utterly impotent to save them, to deliver them, to provide for them, so the demonic dark powers in which mankind trusts throughout the ages will not save them, will not deliver them, but will only manage to cover them with defilement by which they will be condemned. Only the true God has the power to triumph and prosper mankind. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we must reject any alternative. Obviously, we have to reject the false gods. We shouldn't follow uh, Islam's Allah or the false gods of the Buddhists and the Hindus or any of the others. But we also need to refuse to trust in men who serve as false gods. We need to reject those who call us to to trust in the goodness of mankind. We need to reject those who exalt the gods of charismatic leaders and governments. We need to reject the siren song of money or power or prestige as the source of our prosperity. God alone offers hope for this life and the life to come. 
In none other is there power to heal or to prosper or to deliver or to soothe. And therefore, we must look to Him no matter what we face, no matter what we endure, no matter what looms on the horizon. Only He can deliver everyone else. Everything else is utterly impotent. Now, of course, Pharaoh refuses to see that. As soon as the frogs die, his heart becomes hard, and he turns away from God. We see that often in the hearts of the unregenerate. It's been said that there are no atheists in foxholes. Kids, you know what that means? Foxhole is a a hole that soldiers dig to hide from uh, rifle fire and, and incoming rounds. It's a place where you're filled with fear. When you're in a foxhole and the enemy bullets are flying overhead, you're pretty quick to pray. Even though you might have scorned God before, all of a sudden you want to know what His promises are. You want to, you want to seek His help. But it's not uncommon that once the bullets stop, once the battle is over, those who prayed in the foxhole pray no more. Twenty-three years ago we saw that. 9-11 attacks, the whole nation was stunned by the evil and the ugliness of mankind. They were shocked by the images they saw, not only of those two iconic buildings collapsing, but of people in desperation jumping from the windows. The news of thousands of their countrymen having died in one day as a result of terrorist attacks, it filled churches, didn't it? Filled churches with people who normally wouldn't darken the doors, praying for mercy. But how many of them were there the following Sunday, or the Sunday after that, or the Sunday after that? So Pharaoh, while the frogs filled his bedroom and his kitchen, he was willing to concede. But once they all died, his heart hardened. We must not follow that. By the way, we're in a season in our congregation where there's a lot, a lot of reason to pray. So many are grieving. So many are struggling with cancer and other ailments. And we know how to pray. Fathers, you're leading your families in devotions. That's such a blessing. Mothers, you're reminding your children where our hope is found. What a great joy. Teenagers, you're taking the Lord seriously. Great. But don't stop. Don't let your heart be hardened when the grief dims, when the disease is healed, when life becomes easier. No, stand firm, stand strong, continue to serve the Lord. Pharaoh wastes no time returning to his hardness of heart, which is what the unregenerate always does. And so God is just to send his third plague without warning. Pharaoh knows what he should do. He's been repeatedly reminded. And therefore, when the king breaks his word, God's wrath breaks out against him again. But the means of the judgment is unique. God says to Moses... Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats 
in all the land of Egypt. Now, no one today is entirely sure exactly what species of critter was brought forth here. Our pew Bible renders it gnats. That's a pretty likely possibility. Another is mosquitoes. Uh, the New King James renders it, um, oh, now I forget, lice, also a possibility. Um, some have suggested ticks, which could be. It's only, the, the word's only used with regard to this plague. But what we know, it was something tiny. Something normally all but overlooked. And yet, that tiny, overlooked, scorned creature, God multiplied and used to utterly plague and make miserable all of the people of Egypt. The land was filled with these tiny pests. They became literally as common as the dust The people and the livestock alike were covered with them. They couldn't escape from them. Imagine gnats or mosquitoes filling the air that you breathe, getting into your ears, into your nose, into your mouth, covering your food. You can't escape from them in your sleep because even if you cover yourself with blankets, they're under the blankets. Even if you run outside, they're outside. So you run back inside, they're inside too. You can't escape. You can't go anywhere. But now Pharaoh, he's gotten into quite an efficient pattern at this point. He has his magicians on speed dial. They know that whatever Moses and Aaron do, they're called to replicate it, thereby giving Pharaoh the opportunity, the excuse to refuse. To say your God is not unique. But this time they can't. Maybe God has caused their black magic to dry up. Or maybe if they've been using sleight of hand, well, I guess that's understandable. How do you, how do you manage to capture and hold and preserve alive enough gnats or mosquitoes or lice to cause them to swarm at command? You can't do it. Regardless of why, the magicians are unable, and so they're forced to concede to Pharaoh. This is interesting. Their inability forces them to concede to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So what's the lesson there? Obviously, it's a reminder of the misery that comes to those who rest in their sin, those who refuse to serve God. But unlike the first two plagues, there, there seems to be no direct religious significance to the gnats. Their significance lay in the fact that God filled the land with them. Whether literally or merely in appearance, He caused the dust of the land to become gnats. They were so thick that they coated man and beast alike. And the men whom, is, whom Egypt regarded as their holiest and most powerful, they had no power. They had no ability. They had no strength. Up to this point, Pharaoh and Egypt were relying on their own strength and ingenuity. They would come up with a plan. They would have the power. They would have the ability. But now the true God has filled with the land with evidence 
of their insufficiency. They're not enough. And that should have brought Pharaoh to his knees. The best, the brightest, the holiest men of Egypt are powerless to do what the true God has done. And the consequences for rejecting him are getting worse and worse. For any decent king, the course of action is obvious. Command the people to submit to this God. Demonstrate to them the submission which he is due. That's what the king of Nineveh later would do. Hearing the words of Jonah, hearing the destruction and the judgment that was about to come upon his land, he set an example for the people by fasting, by wearing sackcloth and ashes. And God spared his land. That's what any decent and good king would do. However, there is no such thing as decent and good in those who hate God. Decency is measured by God's righteousness. Goodness is defined by His law. Everything about Pharaoh stood opposed to goodness and decency. So Pharaoh, despite his misery, despite the misery of his land, he is steadfast in his rejection of God. In his stubborn and foolish pride, he has set himself on a course of self-destruction rather than submit to the true God. We must not follow that path. As I said, we are always, as long as we live in this world, until Christ returns to perfect it, we will be tempted to rely on false gods. Especially the false God that rests on me, my, I. The false God that pays lip service to the true God, but really rests in my strength, my power, my wisdom, my endurance. And we must not. The test is by whom do you identify yourself? Young adults, when someone says, tell me about yourself, how do you do that? Do you say, well, this is the work I do, or this is the family to which I belong, or this is where I come from, or this is what I enjoy in my... Or do you start out by saying, I'm a servant of the living God? Do you start out by pointing to Christ as your Savior and your cause for life? Do you start out by identifying the Lord, the triune God, as the root and heart of who you are and what you are? That's the mark of one who's not merely paying lip service to the Lord, but truly resting in Him. The Apostle Peter, we heard earlier, warned us the day of the Lord will come like a thief what is the day of the Lord it's the day of judgment but it's also the day of revealing Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 that on that day many will come before the Lord and they'll say Lord Lord didn't we do all these things in your name didn't we serve you didn't we worship you didn't we go to church And to many of them, God will say, Jesus will say, get away from me, 
you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. In other words, their behavior demonstrated the truth of their heart. They lived for sin. They lived for self. They lived for rebellion. They lived for the moment. They lived for their feelings. They didn't live for Christ. Knowing that, Peter warns us, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. How do we do that? By rejecting the false gods that say, I think I can do that myself. I can make the water blood. I can make the frogs appear. I can provide for my family. I can get out of this tough spot. I can bring about healing. No, you can't. The only way we can be found without blemish or spot is by trusting in Christ. By acknowledging Him as the only God. By spending time in His Word to understand who He is and what He's done and what He's like. By praying for His strength to live in a manner that is pleasing to Him. Take care, He says, that you not be carried away by the error of lawless people and lose your stability. But instead, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If we do that, then brothers and sisters, we won't have to worry about gnats and frogs and the common things of this life humbling us and demonstrating our weakness. Because it's the common things that will humble us. It's that broken bolt when you're trying to fix the car. It's that missing ingredient when there's company coming over. It's that homework assignment that you forgot. It's that doctor's appointment that was supposed to be routine. And it will show you how weak, how insufficient, how powerless you are, unless your strength, unless your power, unless your life are bound up in Christ. But if you're resting in Him, if He is the one in whom you are trusting for the great things as well as the small, that broken bolt, that missing assignment, that missing ingredient, they won't mean a thing. Nor will you fear the judgment. Because Christ already went through it for you. In Him is your life. In Him is your eternity. In Him is your all. And therefore to Him will be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we infinitely weak but you are infinitely strong not only do you know the trials and the hardships and the difficulties that we will face but you ordained them and ordained for them to bless us in the end we can't fathom that Lord we can't comprehend it and yet we know that you and you alone are great enough to do it Thank you for sovereignly overseeing our lives. Teach us, Lord, to reject the false gods of this world and the false gods that seek to well up within us. And teach us daily, through the blessings and the trials alike, 
to trust in you. To rest in your sovereign care. To find our hope and our identity in your beloved Son. That on the day of judgment we might stand with confidence before you. Knowing that our life is bound up with the life of your Son. In his name we ask this. Amen. Beloved, in response to this call to trust in Christ, let's stand and sing the remaining stanzas of Psalm 59, selection 107, stanzas 6 through 9. We're going to use an alternate tune that you'll find to be pretty familiar. Um, The last four stanzas. Let us pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you provide so perfectly for us each day of our lives. Receive now the worship of our tithes and our offerings that they might demonstrate our gratitude and that they might use to further increase your glory. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. Our offering song this morning is number 156, Now to God Our King, number 156.
we're going to sing stanzas one and four. Number one and four. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.